Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 219 Green Connect, where we explore topics about the environment and green living in Northwest Indiana. I'm your host, Kathy Sipple, and today with me I have Marshall Willoughby. He is a hardcore environmentalist from Gary, Indiana, and I've asked him to come here today to talk to me about his permaculture lifestyle. I first met Marshall several years ago at a green drinks meetup in Valparaiso, Indiana. I was just really fascinated by his example and his passion for living very, very light on the land. He has several very interesting YouTube videos that you can find out about in the uh, show notes. There are links there that will take you right to his uh, videos. And then he's also been featured in the Chicago Tribune, and this is just an excerpt from the writer who wrote the article. One day, Willoughby believes, there will be no gas for your cars and your toilet will not flush. If that day comes, and Willoughby thinks it will be soon, he will wake again on the floor of his dome, load wood into his generator, and his life will not have changed at all. So I thought that was just a tremendous insight to my guest today. Welcome, Marshall Willoughby. Good evening. And to all your listening audience. Thank um, you. Thank, thanks for joining honored. me. Yeah, quite honored well, to be here. Uh, you know, there's no uh, big revenue in saving the world, uh, but what you can do is set an example, and that's what I did a few years ago, well, uh, 10 or 14 years ago. Uh, you know, how does one live? You know, the average person uh, doesn't, he has a house, he doesn't know how it works, he, you know, he just calls somebody to fix something, um, and so if these support systems are not in place, the power goes out, the water doesn't come out the faucet, you know, then what? You know, uh, our lives virtually stop. And um, I got aware of the oil situation uh, years ago. In 1970, I had an auto repair business, and uh, there were people in gas lines and et cetera, et cetera, and I said, this is odd. And I looked uh, did some research into it and found out that that 1970 shortage had been predicted in 1956 by a geologist called uh, Hubbard, a University of Chicago trained geologist. He was a head geologist for Shell Oil, and um, Shell didn't want him to put his figures out, but he said that uh, by 1970, half the oil, the oil in the lower 48 states would be gone, and the second half would be uh, on a downward slope, so therefore it's called Hubbard's Peak. It's a bell-shaped curve, and sure enough, 1970, they laughed at him, by the way. Oh, no, that can't happen, but in 1970, uh, 71, it did happen, and uh, everybody went on uh, the hunt for oil, and they found oil in the uh, North Sea, oil in Alaska, and oil in the Gulf. And uh, it takes 10 years for oil to come online uh, from discovery to production about that long. And um, that oil was produced um, in the early 80s. And uh, everybody went back to sleep. Oh, we have plenty of oil. Everything's okay. Uh, We're all right. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the only president that told the truth that, you know, we had to do things different and put solar panels on the White House. But uh, Mr. Reagan came along. People didn't want to hear the truth. I think 
two things people don't want to hear, and that's the truth and facts. So they voted in the actor, not the nuclear scientist, Jimmy Jimmy Carter. You know, they went for the, you know, look so good, feel good in the morning America, and uh, went with Reagan and let's drive big vehicles. And I'm thinking, what are they thinking? Um, From my limited experience with you, I I feel you have no problem with facts or truth. (laughs) You're pretty much (laughs) a very factual guy that embraces uh, history and facts and really likes to kind of lead by example, right? So can you tell us a little bit about the unique power that you use at your home? I just thought this was so fascinating. Well, I I just have like a regular uh, Harbor Freight. I think everybody's heard of Harbor Freight. I bought seven of their solar panel kits. Each kit consists of three 15-watt solar panels and a little distribution center and a couple of lights. And uh, I ganged them all together. And uh, I bought a uh, windmill from hydrogenappliances.com. This is a small wind turbine. It's about as big as an automobile alternator, and you don't need any heavy equipment to put it up. It fits on a regular one-and-a-half-inch pipe, and you can put two of them on one pipe, and they are not uh, regulated. They can spin uh, in winds up to 125 miles an hour. Uh, most windmills, take, they take a crane to put up, and uh, in high winds, you have to, they have to have device to keep them from uh, spinning up until they blow up. These things, you just put them up and forget it. And it's a very simple device. You can go to their uh, their, uh, website. That's hydrogenappliances.com. And uh, when the wind blows and it's storming out there, you have power. Um, But most people want to run their homes like, can I run my my washing machine off this window? No. but in a power outage, it's better to have a 12-volt battery and, and uh, 3% power than no power at all to be able to run your cell phone, uh, your computer, and, and some lights and uh, a radio, you know, to stay in touch with, with the world. And, and people aren't uh, thinking about things like that. Right. Uh, Incredible. And then you also have something called a wood gasification unit. Yes, these are yes, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you can see it work on my video uh, on the links as you stated. But that was the first crude one I built, and my friends thought I was losing my mind, and because I uh, would go work on it and go on the internet and look, and uh, oh, I need to incorporate this, and I go make that change, and so one day. Uh, I had all the pieces plugged in right, and voila, I got uh, a burnable gas off of wood. And it's uh, it was very popular during World War II when there were fuel shortages, and it helped build America way back in the day. But as oil became available, it was soon forgotten. Uh, But you can take ordinary wood and... uh, produce a burnable gas, which consists of mainly hydrogen and CO2. And uh, the byproduct is biochar. Uh, You get activated charcoal out of it. And you can eat this charcoal. It helps purify your system. It stores poisons. You can put it in your garden. 
uh, one piece of charcoal as big as an eraser has the, the area of a house. So it's very b- beneficial for organisms to grow in it in your soil. And you can filter water with it. Uh, so it, 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 but it's kind of, uh, I, I figured I'd better learn how to do this. So I taught myself, built a unit, taught myself how to use it because it's like uh, half uh, science, half art. It sounds <laughs> like it. sounds like you're it. kind of MacGyver, <laughs> pretty uh, technically proficient. Um, would it be really tacky or just not not comfortable for me to ask, what has your investment been in this equipment? Roughly? Uh, about $100 or 200 bucks. That's amazing. So, and then your utility bills look like what? You're off the grid completely? Yeah, I don't have any utility bills except for uh, a little Harbor Freight, less than a $100 generator, which I would advise your users to get if they don't have any source, any generator at all. Uh, Harbor Freight sells this little two-cycle, eight or 900-watt two-cycle generator and... Um, I bought one, and they they would you know break after a little while, and they finally got them right, and they're they're very reliable in subdegree weather. And it, it, one gallon will run this thing all night, you know, uh, for eight hours or so, and depending on the load, of course. And mm-hmm. it can, it runs my pump, so I can pump up water from my well, and you know entertainment, you know, if I want to run a DVD, whatever, whatever. But uh, I could use it less if I had a bigger battery bank, but I operate off of two uh, 12-volt deep cycle batteries. It doesn't really take a lot to live. We just think it does. And it it definitely takes managing your expectations a little bit. I mean, the, the setup that you're telling me about that probably would not be adequate to, you know, uh, power up a McMansion or even a moderately sized suburban home but that's not the kind of home you live in, is that right? Can you say a little uh, bit no, about your I, house? I live in a I live in a geodesic dome that's made out of foam. Um, did you create design this design? Piece. Did you create that design uh, no, yourself? No, you you can find these at American Ingenuity, and they make foam houses uh, up to sixty feet in diameter, and they make a little shed. They'll sell you a kit for a little, not a shed. They make a shed kit. Um, and it's roughly 12 feet and uh, 110 square feet, 12 feet in diameter. I think that's um, just fascinating. And just for people who might be outside the area, you know, I did mention in your intro, you're you're in Gary, right? Gary, Indiana. It's not like you live in the country or you're in some, you know, different kind of a place. It's it's a fairly urban setting. Um, well, due to uh, the um, uh, through a peculiar set of circumstances, I, I was uh, uh, acquired a piece of a land that, that wasn't, uh, it's kind of disjointed from the rest of the community. And God put me there so I could uh, do my experiment in living <laughs> and be unfettered. And we got the permits and everything to build a, a underground burned house and found that there was water on the property, uh, which is a good thing. And it would take substantial investment to build up the property to get the water level up, blah blah blah. So I opted to go with this smaller version. 
um, a very, very small version. And there is a, a movement underfoot called, you know, teeny tiny houses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where people do build their own houses and they're very small. And they find out, like, uh, less is more, you know. Yep. <laughs> I don't have to, anything that breaks, I can repair it. You know, I don't have to call them to do it. This is going to cost you. It's not a money pit, you know, and you don't pay 30 years for it, you know. And um, so, yeah, it's pretty pretty liberating uh, to live like that. And uh, people should start putting themselves in the position now as far as their, their work, uh, as far as their transportation needs. You know, if you could uh, make it so you live within your work, uh, you know, distance of your job, walking or bicycling distance of your job uh, because the commute, the 40-mile commute, is going to be extinct. And we are headed for a very, very severe crisis in fuel because people think that low gas prices, woo-wah-wee, they're great. But uh, no, they're not because all those dollars that we're getting to spend now are not being given to the oil companies. And, of course, everybody hates oil companies. <laughs> but um, it does cost more money for them to produce what they produce, and it's also ecologically destructive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Obama said we have to kick the oil habit, and we really, really do. And people uh, are either going to step down off the ladder voluntarily and put themselves in the position for these um, hard times coming up, or they're going to be knocked off the ladder by sheer circumstance. <laughs> you know, not being able to afford the gas, not being able to do this, that. Go ahead. Well, I think, you know, you set a great example about, you've, you've already mentioned your overhead, you've got a home, you've got your, you know, your energy sources from solar and your, um, you know, wood gasification, you've got your water with your own well, so I guess that leaves food as being kind of a next big thing. Do you grow any of your own food? Yes, I have a black thumb. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> You and, get down into the dirt. <laughs> and everything I touch with the black thumb would promptly die. So, <laughs> I, uh, that was, so you're that, not that eating. Was my weak, that was my weak strength. Is is the but I'm you know I'm learning, and over the over the years I've learned and uh, I found out that uh, permaculture uh, one of the mainstays of permaculture is uh, making a swale. And you bury it's on the internet, folks. Come on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you bury a bunch of dead wood. Hugel culture. And, uh, Is that right? A rotten Hugel wood. Cul- yeah, I think that's what they call it. Hugel culture. Uh, it's a swell. Well, it's the same thing. But anyway, okay. I, so I said, okay, this. I tried it. I, I have a raised bed, and I put uh, decayed wood in the bottom of it, and covered it with my mulch. You know, um, uh, composted uh, wood chips. Et cetera, et cetera, in a bucket of my magic elixir, uh, which is uh, uh, wood ash, mixed it all up, and planted tomatoes and put a fence around it and watered it twice and didn't water it again <laughs> all summer. That's great. And I just came back. I just came back and picked up picked up the oranges. <laughs> I'm, I'm not oranges. I'm sorry, tomatoes. I'm like, wow, you and, do have uh, an interesting thumb if you planted tomatoes and got oranges. <laughs> I want to know what yeah, you're doing. <laughs> yeah. 
it's, and, and greens and this stuff. I'll tell you when you eat it. I had I had uh, I roller skate and uh, 69 years old, and um, I love to roller skate, and I ride my bicycle, and I you know I believe in in being active, and I I ride to the gas station on my bicycle every day and get a cup of coffee, and watch these poor people struggle to get out of their cars and waddle up and pay their money and then waddle back to the car. Uh, the car is killing us, folks. If you park your car in the garage and start up the engine and close the door, it will kill you. If you run enough cars planet-wide, it will kill the planet. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's kind of like, as much as we love cars, I spent uh, most of my life in all. I had a major foreign car repair shop in Hyde Park in, uh, in Chicago. And I was a motorhead as a kid, you know. But, you know, uh, reality sunk in. You know, like, hey, we can't keep doing this. You know, and uh, we don't, everybody's not going to be able to get an electric car. And there won't be a hydrogen economy. Uh, you know, and everybody's, you know, bringing out the, this stuff. And it it's not going to happen. I mean, just the physical dimensions of everything, the, the amount of resources available, lithium. Copper, you know, that when we got to this country, there was a mountain of copper and nuggets as big as Volkswagen's. Now it's a big hole in the ground. And these gigantic trucks, I saw a picture of this thing. It's miles wide and very, very deep. And it takes a diesel truck to bring the ore up, and the ore is only like 2 or 3 4% copper. So it has to be processed with diesel fuel. If you connect the dots with our energy or the Internet, or your cell phone, it's all dependent on energy. And since we've been using cell phones and in the digital revolution, it's uh, up our overall uses of electricity by about 10% for all the server farms and everything that's doing what it does. And uh, our interesting story, James Howard Kunstler, looked him up, folks, at, uh, uh, in his book, The Long Emergency, uh, was giving a talk to the uh, people at Google and uh, he was telling them about the thing, and they said, "But dude, we have technology, <laughs> you know." And you know, you can't plug in technology. Technology runs off the off of energy. Okay, all it, it's very nice and very good, but it runs off of energy. Ask what powers your cell phone. Right. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, I I've tried to kind of you know keep Can score. I need my- the question. What powers your cell phone? What powers my cell phone? Uh, yes, ma'am. Electricity. I need to plug it From in. Where? Electricity. Well, I actually have, um, I do have a bill that I get from NIPSCO. I did sign up for their green energy option, which is through renewable energy credits. I don't have mm-hmm. solar, you know, on my, my own roof, but I did sign up for the 100%, you know, uh, REC. So, I do at least have the renewable energy credits. They're not producing that mm-hmm. themselves, but as I mm-hmm. understand it, they subcontract that out. And frankly, I've interviewed them on the podcast as well, and I said, you know, why would NIPSCO do that? And they said the same thing you just said. There's so much more demand because of, you know, cell phones and more computers and more TVs that That's to, be, yeah. 
to yeah to meet that demand, they would have to build a very expensive you know coal powered you know place to to process all that electricity, make all that electricity. It it wouldn't make financial sense for them to do. So they they'd rather take the hit and get some people to convert to the green energy option. They obviously don't want everybody to go over that, but they just said that would be better for them not to have to invest in that capital. So long answer, but I have done my homework a little bit. <laughs> well, they're, they're dragging their feet, actually, probably. But most people don't know that their cell phone's powered by coal. Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, I do know like that. that end, your cell phone's powered by coal. You know. Yeah, if and you plug you, it in, you chase all the, yeah, yeah, if you, and you chase and if all you plug it in, out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, you're you're right. I mean, I think you're probably more aware than probably 99% of the population of, of how this all works and are actually doing something about it in virtually every area of your life. So you've been kind of off-grid now for how long? Oh, I think 14 years maybe. 14 years, okay. Yeah. So yeah. is there anything that you still need a traditional economy for? Or, you know, is there any area of your life that you're still trying oh, to get more I, self-sufficient? I it. Uh, everybody's we're going to need each other. Okay, and uh, this is the one thing we do not have in this country, everybody. I am in my little house in the suburbs, which is basically a dormitory where they go home and they sleep. Like I have these large McMansions built around me upon arriving here, and the people are virtually never there because they're out trying to pay for the McMansion. Um, so we need, you need to know your neighbors around you. Uh, your neighbors are going to be very important. Uh, you might have food, but if everybody doesn't have food, if everybody in your community isn't reasonably well-informed or and equipped for an emergency, that's where we need to be. And uh, we need to have uh, neighbors working together uh, on energy. On Well, there's a thing called uh, what, Transition Town. Have you heard mm-hmm. of that? I have. Yeah, yeah, those things. We need something like that. And I, I find out, I'm a Vietnam veteran, and I find out one thing about Vietnam, that uh, the people we were with, were one, I, I risked my life for them and, and have, and they do it for me in a heartbeat. Uh, you come to civilian life, and everybody is grad-handing, and, you know, they extend and pretend. You know, come on over, and you show up, and it's like, what are you doing here? And, you know, that that has to go. We have to be honest and helpful with each other uh, or else, you know, we're we're all in this together. We're all bozos on the bus, as some of the, the people put it. And uh, we only have one planet, and we're well on our way to doing it in. So, uh, you know, we have to be proactive instead of reactive. And there's a lot of greenwashing going on out there. You know, oh, yeah, this is green, this is good. But, you know, if you look behind the curtain, it's not that way. Yeah, one sure thing is to grow your own food. You should have a garden, okay? You should have a, a, a way to purify water. You should have a small amount of electricity, uh, non-dependent on the grid. You know, this is just for starters. You know, we're trying to get a steady state economy, if there is such a thing. 
but growth, if anybody gets in front of you and says, we're going to grow and growth, we've reached the limits of growth. You know, so, but that's the only thing the society knows since we're on, you know, the system has to operate on the pretense that we're going to have more money tomorrow to pay back the loan than we have today, and that that's not the case. And the other thing is exponential numbers. And that's a real kicker that we don't understand, that it, towards the end of these exponential numbers, they explode. That, to give an example, that uh, I want a checkerboard with one grain of rice on the first square, two, four, you know, eight, 16, and so forth. By the time you get to the 64th, however many squares are on a checkerboard, you have this astronomical number. Yeah, it's yeah. It's huge. I actually took, and, um, I was an economics major at the University of Michigan back in the 80s, and I took economics of population. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, just like you said, the guy predicted in the 50s the, the gas shortage in the 70s. You know, we were looking at numbers that pretty much extrapolated right to where we are now. And, you know, it's just, it, it is kind of crazy that we knew this, and yet here it is. So we got to be smarter than an amoeba. You know, like the thing we put it in a petri dish and it just grows until it eats up all the food and yeah. chokes on it. You know, <laughs> that's how they make wine. You know, and and we're you know, man is smart. And you look at people and you say, oh, you know, oil is a finite resource. There's only so much of it. And they go, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's going to run out, and it's it almost you know that's going to happen. It's not run out. Be very very expensive. And uh, the other uh, uh, cracker in the box is the, that the financial system might implode uh, due to the cheap gas prices because there's so much invested in oil and the fracking and everything, billions and billions of dollars. And these oils, uh, these oil wells produce for a very short period of time, and so they have to drill another one and another one and another one. So the world peaked in 2005. World oil production has peaked and remained steady. The only new source of oil has been this uh, seven or so million barrels a day we get from the Balkans and the Texas and the Shale and all that. That's called uh, unconventional oil or hard oil, tight oil, call it what you want. But that's the only thing that's kept us from really feeling the shock. And so it's like being totally broke and finding $100 in the couch and going like, wow, should I get some solar panels and windmills or start a garden? But no, I'm going to go to the club and, you know, buy a bottle and have a good time. Mm -hmm. And so basically that's where we are now. When this little bubble of uh, overproduction wears out uh, and the, the oil companies are betting on this because they have tankers parked out there, super tankers full of oil parked. Because the price is too low, they buy the oil low, and when the price, when the uh, extra capacity is used up, and the uh, unconventional producers are going to be severely crippled financially because people are withdrawing their money in stocks from oil right now. So about mid-year, you might see a, a you know four or five dollar a gallon gas. But we take it, people are so illiterate about this uh, topic, they, they're going to run out. And I had a friend of mine tell me the other day, she's buying a Tesla 
but somebody went to the Audi dealer and traded in a hundred thousand dollar Tesla for the most loaded fuel gasoline Audi SUV that they had. Oh my goodness! Oh boy! Because they figured that we're out of the woods. It's all over. You know, gas is cheap again. Oh, yeah. contraire! Yeah, big <laughs> so, wake up call. Yeah, a big wake up call. Well, that yeah. You know, so I I just hope that whoever listens to this, you know, I I don't know that everybody's going to go out and build their own foam geodesic dome and do everything that you've done, but I have to say, meeting you years ago, it did make an impact on me. It's like you know, your voice and the voice of many others that I've met through Green Drinks. You know, you just see what people are willing to do and the changes they made. And it, it does challenge you when you know that there are real people out there. They're not just, you know, in some other country. They're in our neighborhoods. They're stepping up and doing their part. So I just want to appreciate, you know, tell you I appreciate you for sharing your story today. We're almost out of time, but I have a feeling we could have you back on many, many different topics, <laughs> going down a rabbit hole on all the various ways that you become self-sufficient. So, again, I want to thank Marshall Willoughby for joining me today. Again, he's uh, practicing permaculture in Gary, Indiana. And I'm Kathy Sipple, your host. This has been another episode of 219 Green Connect. You can look at past archived episodes on our website, 219greenconnect.com, or you can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes. If you could do us a favor and give us a rating a certain number of stars, a high number of stars, hopefully on iTunes, that does help our visibility and will get us uh, more listens. And so we do want to share good news like Marshall's uh, lifestyle and his example that he's setting with as many people as possible. So you can also take this MP3, share it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, get the word out. This is a possible thing that we can do. So again, thank you, Marshall, and thank you, listening audience, for listening to 219 Green. Thank you for having me. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.